0: Hi, in this episode of the Transforming Society podcast, we're speaking to Eunice Allen, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Bradford and author of Race, Taste, Class and Cars. This is the latest book in our 21st Century Standpoint series published in association with the British Sociological Association. In the book, Eunice explores the sociology of everyday life by looking at how we create and modify our identity through cars. I have to confess that I didn't think I was that interested in cars until I read the book, but it actually shows that there are many unexpected ways in which they define us. So let's find out more. Hi, Eunice.
1: Hi, Jess.
0: Thank you for joining us today. We're chatting on Skype because we're in the midst of coronavirus lockdown. Um, But hopefully the quality will come out okay. Um, So to get cracking, you say in the preface of the book that research is personal and political with you in terms of connection to the subject matter. I thought it'd be nice to start if you could tell us a bit about your background and how it led to the book. Uh, Were you interested in cars and part of the car culture world?
1: So for me, sociology is firstly, it's quite a significant discipline in terms of not just um, this kind of cliched ivory tower domain of work where you just sit alone with others like yourself and just theorize or conceptualize or allow data to draw in and feed theory and all that, yeah. which is very important, but but it ought to have a kind of um, public impact, a broader impact that is meaningful at, at at all levels. And the themes in the book are, are personal and political as well. Yeah. First, first, because, you know, the book's about Bradford. Yes. And you can't really... I mean, you can, but, you know, uh, there's a whole industry that's grown up around Bradford, around ethnic relations. Yeah. Since the 60s, since the 50s and 60s, people have been writing about Bradford, you get the whole gamut of social science disciplines finding Bradford to be a very interesting, stimulating place to do their research. Um, and and this, again, this isn't about privileging me because I am, in, in, in a sense, indigenous. I was born and brought up in Bradford. So for me, there's a real strong connection between place or home uh, and who I am and what I think I'm doing. And because of the way in which Bradford and some of its identities or communities have been written about, I have a, a great deal of investment in that.
0: You include um, a lot of the field notes from your research, don't you, in the book, and that really brings all of that through.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, that sort of, it's not uncommon in ethnographies to have that, but I, I still figure that in a mainstream sociological book, it might be interesting for readers to see what's going on off the page.
0: Yeah, exactly, you know, so,
1: yeah. So, so, and it's And it's meant to be sort of frank and a bit honest, Ethnography is partly about the data that are out there you know your people or the culture or the groups or the scenes or the issues you're covering but a lot of it is about you mm. it can't help you know it cannot help but be about you because you're the person who's writing this stuff. I think your
0: personality comes through in the book as well there's one scene where you're talking you're writing about talking to some bloke in a garage and right. you kind of you use the phrase mischief making. It's almost yeah, like you're yeah. kind of encouraging to just go, go and go and go. I thought that, yeah. that that's quite
1: yeah. good. You read excellent ethnographies. Some of the best ethnographies I've ever read are really quite serious undertakings, right? Mm-hmm. And and the data are so revealing, so insightful and textured and rich and everything else. And I'm like, but I wondered what you were thinking at that time. I wonder what you know. How did that point come to be?
0: Because that's the thing you're never tr- you're never truly um, objective, are you? you are well, part of the research
1: exactly. you're part
0: of the you're part of the um, result you're part of the evidence
1: yeah you you tie, you feed into that wholly and you know yeah. uh, and i've been tr- kind of quite upfront about that and there are debates around subjectivity within ethnography and other disciplines as well i, I uh-huh. and you know I, I make some mention of that and but for me it's, it is it, you cannot detach your subjectivity you can't it's it why bother in a way
0: ethnography and that kind of approach is going to play an important role when we're looking at what's going on right now isn't it with coronavirus yeah yeah. things like that that is going to be about the human experience as well as the scientific evidence
1: sure so already there are you know hordes of sociologists and other social scientists not to mention you know the other disciplines in the natural sciences and so on who are who are getting very you know perhaps this is Poor choice of words, but quite excited about the opportunities that this context is We're going to afford. learn a lot
0: from it, though,
1: aren't we? Yeah, I, I absolutely, yeah. There's loads of different layers and streams of data that are coming through. Uh, and at the moment, it, for me, it's like I'm just kind of thinking about it. I'm a little, I wouldn't say sort of fearful about it, but ordinarily this kind of stuff doesn't really interest me. I'm more mm. interested in the kind of banal, ordinary stuff. But this is now banal and ordinary. The banal yeah. element of the COVID crisis and everything else is the fact how people are getting on with their lives. Exactly. That's the banality yeah. and the reality of it. So again, this is, you know, why you do research in the first place has to be personal and political, in my view. Certainly the type of research that I do. If I, if there isn't anything in it for me in terms of, uh, crudely speaking, sort of some sense of satisfaction or purpose, then uh, I'm not likely to sort of pursue it. Um, But, you know, the cars thing was, the cars, you know, this isn't meant to be a pun, although it is a pun, the the car literally was a vehicle through which Mm -hmm. I could kind of talk about other issues. It's not merely about cars. I mean, the car culture stuff is fascinating, I still find. But it's all the other sociological components that that fit into this that, that I find even more challenging and stimulating. So
0: let's get on to the subject of the book now and the content of the book. Um, So it's about cars and the roles cars play in how we construct our our identities. Um, I guess that's one of the key themes you're talking about there, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, there, there are very easy sort of cliches around cars and identity, you know, everything from number plates to tinted windows, bumper stickers. Yeah. And even brands, you know, even the type of car, you know, you see a pink car. Generally speaking, it's a woman's car. Mm-hmm. That, that is still a kind of, uh, arguably, a sexist sort of cliche or stereotype. And that's
0: what we assume when we see yeah, it. Isn't yeah, it?
1: yeah. So, so there's all that background stuff going on, but it actually becomes enveloped in all sorts of identity markers. What we see in cars, and I, and I. I kind of ended up reducing some of this into almost, uh, not algebra, but like little equations in in the book. So if you see a particular car in a particular context at a particular time, and then there's an equal sign. So, you know, gangster car plus... uh,
0: Yeah, I remember that,
1: yeah. Yeah, non-white driver or black driver or BME driver, whatever.
0: Equals drug uh,
1: dealer. Equals drug dealer. Uh, But if you see that car, and it's driven by also BME driver, but an older BME driver... Uh, in a in a particular neighbourhood and there are other signifiers of the car which indicate non-gangsterism. <laughs> I didn't really go to town on all this. It might be a doctor, you know. Yeah. So I know there are doctors who drive four-wheel drive cars or whatever, professionals. Uh, and, and So, you know, just a little sort of story and anecdote and it's in the book. Uh, quite a few years ago, I remember there was a senior police officer uh, who gave a talk to a bunch of people uh, in, a, in a restaurant. It was like an... He was a civil servant. Mm -hmm. senior copper uh, and he was talking to a bunch of mostly muslim south asian bme men and women in a room in a large function room and he started off pretty much saying look you know bradford's a hub for drug dealers we know this because just look at all the cars that are kicking about right but you know literally what he said and you know he had there were a couple of local police officers again relatively senior sat to either side and they both hung their heads and they thought what are you saying this is ridiculous partly because it is such a huge stereotype but actually the other thing was and i'm not sure if the person who ordered that in the first place realized that most of the people in the room were driving the kinds of cars that he referred to as drug dealing cars you know gangster yeah. cars range robbers followed dr- most of the people in the room they weren't drug dealers. They were like working for the council, or they were working as lawyers, or they were doing something that is broadly speaking professional. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I was in the room, but you know, I was driving a banger at the time, and I'm not sure, but still, a relatively middle class sort of profession. Yeah. Right. So, you know, th- those are the kind of threads of the narratives around cards and identities that I was really interested in, and and they are so they are so grounded that you know even like. People like me. Well, here I'm talking about people of a particular class and I think heritage. And here I'm talking about kind of uh, not class where I am now, but class where I came from. So economically, I'm middle class, but actually culturally, I'm still kind of working class. Mm-hmm. Born, brought up in inner city of Bradford. I used to have arguments when I was younger, uh, slightly younger, and on the trajectory to becoming a lecturer. You know, with some of my lecturers, they were saying, "Well, you know, you're you're becoming middle class," and I would say, "Never." You know, yeah. talking about I was proper sort of class warrior sort of thing quite naive but they were right at least economically speaking i was i was demonst- i was going to be demonstrating some kind of upward mobile uh, class mobility you know. yeah but in economic not, not so much i would argue in political and cultural terms uh, so there's all that going on there as well in terms of how we read class when we see an account for a car and and so and, and again it there is a There are a range of outcomes that come, but some are more commonplace than others. And I've fallen for it as well. So this is what was going back to the point that there are people like me, South Asian heritage in Bradford. So this is very not particular to Bradford, and it's the same in other cities which are ethnically diverse and have a class diversity, Mm -hmm. uh, where you have the people who are kind of being demonized or marginalized embrace that narrative as well. So the number of people who are like me, who are saying, "Well, yeah, they're all drug dealers, aren't they? All these nice cars you're seeing, you know where all the money comes from." Well, why why does that no. happen? Because I, I think partly because it's, it seems rational. When we see something like that, we need to make sense of it.
0: Okay.
1: So we see something and it seems irrational at the first opportunity. So, so, uh, you know, part of this part of the book involves quite a lot of field work. In not just interviewing and observations, but I actually spent quite a bit of time just walking around. So you'd walk around in some parts of Bradford, and these are the, p- the zones that I was brought up in. You know, I was mm-hmm. born in Manningham, right? So I was walking around Manningham, and uh, and Manningham is, in in a sense, one of these areas that is sometimes defined as sort of inner city, and sometimes deprived various indices of, you know, multiple indi- indicators of, of deprivation, okay. all that stuff, right? So, you know, it, it's not the most affluent of places, at least not on paper, right? So, you're walking down the street, terraced houses, no lawns, no gardens, just a door, um, and outside these houses, you'll see a £40,000 car, £50,000 yeah. car. So, you know, what's going on there, right? So, well, what is it? Well, it must be a member of, what? Well, a pop visiting pop star, some kind of celebrity, maybe it's the landlord, right?
0: Yeah.
1: The last thing you're going to think is the guy who owns the house or the person who owns the house or lives in the house, right? Yeah. So so you see that and then you jump to, to particular conclusions and they make sense, they appear coherent. Well, you know, this is Manningham, it's Manningham, right? Yeah, in a city deprived, you know, historically, Manningham was also home to the red light district in Bradford, not so much anymore. A lot of kind of uh, subcultural stuff, and here I'm talking about, in quotes, criminal subcultures. Mm. It was the front line back when I was a kid, very kind of avant-garde part of the city, where you had you know drug dealing, and you had punks, and you had students from the university living in and around Manningham, because it was a kind of bohemian kind of place to be. Not so much, you know, over time, it became merely uh, defined as ethnic minority density, And criminal activity, right? Yeah. So now you're seeing this car in this place that's got this own narrative and biography. What are you going to think? You're going to think, well, obviously, Brad Manningham, ethnic minorities, crime equals drug dealer. Yeah. So that's what you think. All sorts of other scaffolding needs to be erected to make sense of that encounter. Yeah. But the scaffolding is so kind of uh, permanent now, in a way.
0: It's ingrained, isn't it? It's all these it, it stereotypes and, and assumptions. Yeah,
1: and, and it's a lot of it is highly racialized. And you know, people like Fanon were writing about this 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, about you know the extent to which those who are oppressed take hold of and own their narratives that are written against them.
0: Yeah.
1: So so there's it. it, it and again, it kind of feeds back to your first question around you know the politics of this thing. And and, and part of me have been I've been again fortunate. You know, I've worked. Uh, the previous research I've done, it's been with my friend and collaborator, Charlie Husband. And uh, we've been very, very clear about being political in the research to the extent of even not not overly subverting the research premise, but, you know, taking it where we think it needs to go. And part of that is like, you know, what are the narratives at the moment? To what extent do we agree with them? And why do we or don't we agree with them? And what can we do about it?
0: So it becomes activism and resistance, doesn't it? In a at
1: sense. That point? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I'm reluctant to use that, you know, because what my, I'm just a dude who sits behind his desk most of the time and writes, right? Not really activism. I think there's different in a, in, types of activism. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I guess. I mean, it's, it's I, I, I I don't, yeah, I, it is resistance. To my mind, it is, writing is an act of resistance. It's, not, it's an act of politics anyway, yes. whatever you, you know, what and whatever form that takes. You know, what, what, regardless of genre or discipline or anything like that, it is, again, to my mind, a, a politically conscious act. Yeah. Um, so yeah.
0: So um, we've looked at race and class, and taste is also mentioned in the title of the book. What what's the role of taste in terms of car culture, and how does it influence and kind of perpetuate class and identity?
1: Right. So so I I. Borrowed or stole (laughs) quite a bit of Bourdieu. I mean, I've always been enamoured by Bourdieu's stuff around taste, yeah. Uh, And he's wrote extensively around it. And I didn't really want to make a book about Bourdieu. I kind of, I'm, I'm happy to agree that you know, taste is a, is a corollary of of class and about, and it's about habitus, it's about the spaces and the zones we occupy, and it's got everything. It can be traced traced back to things like family and socialisation and all that stuff, right? So taste is acutely tied in with class but also to my mind it ties in to some extent with the the interconnections and the intersectionality that ethnicity or race brings in as well right so the very so, so, so in, in part of the book I talk a little bit about how there is a, a, how in Bradford at least and in other cities uh, a, a, a curious kind of ethnic taste has developed and how that has sort of changed over time. So the earlier generations were merely sort of functional, by and large, you know, not to say that there weren't any outliers, but by and large, folks who came in the 60s and 70s as first-generation migrants, you know, more often than not, a car wasn't really practical or necessary or affordable. No. But when, once they became sort of settlers and they started to rear their families here, then it wasn't uncommon, wasn't Absolutely rare, you know. Car buying started to happen, and generally speaking, you know, when people are in a certain economic position and class position, they'll go for particular types of cars, and they'll try to go for safe bets, and that's just a rational thing to do. Uh, and at the time, I think, you know, Japanese manufacturers were making big, big inroads across the world, but in Europe especially, uh, and in the UK, so you have. A kind of favoring for certain Japanese brands, and that was also kind of attributed in terms of Pakistanis to to Pakistan as well, because I think in the early seventies, I think Nissan opened up a plant in in, or or more than one plant in parts of Pakistan.
0: Right.
1: So there was that kind of connection. There was a kind of connection between and an association between certain manufacturers and what that car can do for you. Yeah. But by the time these people had kids who were old enough to dry, drive, their kids then wanted something slightly different because, you know, people like me, we were born here, we spoke English. That was kind of almost our mother tongue. Mm-hmm. We wore Western clothes. We were what became sort of hyphenated British, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And with that came a kind of hyphenated culture. Yeah. And one thing we didn't want to be was our dads. No, <laughs> nobody wants to be that. No, <laughs> Not until you get older, anyway. It comes so, around, so, yeah. Yeah, and and you know, and and more exotic cars, if you like, you know, two doors or three door coupes, and yeah, things that weren't practical, things that weren't family cars, were obviously more appealing to younger people, and they always have been. So there was a kind of shift for a certain amount of time. And then by the by, the time you get to the nineties and nineties, something else happened completely. You'll find that there's an absolute, almost absolute disavowal of Japanese brands. Not to say that South Asians don't own Japanese brands now, but they're not at the top of your shopping list
0: in terms of like fashion and, and yeah. And yeah. So
1: this is, yeah, and this is where the taste thing comes into it because taste signifies who you are. Yeah. So if I were to drive around in an old, an old, not even an old, not even that old kind of Toyota Corolla. Well, maybe ten or fifteen-year-old Toyota Corolla, because then you know that would signify something about me in terms of my taste, right? Yeah, not just to me, but to others as well. You're young, you're South Asian, uh, or, or not even. And uh, it's not the look you want, an, is it? It's not the look you want, but at the same time, it's not the look that... It, it's, it, it's not the look that is within your sort of price range either, right, because yeah, when yeah. when people of my generation and again some of the participants really clarified this beautifully for me you know so one of the older guys is sort of like 50 52 he said uh when we were young we were you know what's the first thing we did when we passed our test and you know i'm having this conversation with him and i said well you know the first thing i did i think was uh, i bought a banger yeah bought an old banger he says yeah exactly you bought a banger drove around ran it into the ground because why well i didn't have any money dude why else exactly that's all you could afford and he said not our kids our kids aren't like that our kids we've brought them up with something else in mind partly it's because we're relatively better off than our parents were we know we've had a bit of upward mobility some people you know some people are now quite middle class Mm -hmm. so you know their kids have different expectations now and part of that expectation is out with the japanese car by and large and there are exceptions So instead, there's been this broadening of taste whereby pretty much anything goes. So, you know, I was talking to younger people, younger women, and one of them was really funny. Uh, And she's, I said, well, look, you know, uh, she says, well, you know, I'd really want to drive. And I said, what sort of car have you got in mind? Oh, I'd really like. And then she mentioned some big-end Audi, you know, I'd really like a top-of-the-range sort of Audi Q7, this big, massive four-wheel drive thing. Yeah. All right. Well, you're only quite young, you know, it's going to take a few years, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I is what about, sort of, for now, you know, you may be passing your test soon, and what do what you think? Oh, I don't know, I'm going to have to think about it. I says, what about a nice little Nissan Micra or Toyota Yaris, or something, yeah. I said. You know, perfectly decent little car for yeah. a first driver, right? I would say, <laughs> yeah. Fiesta sort of thing. Yeah. But no, I mentioned specifically these two Japanese ones, and she kind of had a look of revulsion on her face. It was, Ugh, I really? wouldn't dare. I so wouldn't better to have dare. no car. Well, that's exactly what she said she said, I'd wow. rather take the bus or walk.
0: Yeah,
1: and that a is a powerful thing. Very much so. So this kind of goes back to some of Bourdieu's work, and its taste is kind of defined by the disgust induced in others.
0: Yes, that's a so brilliant a example of line in the where that. he talks
1: about that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so taste is not just something wholly inhabited by ourselves and you know wh- where it comes from you know so I ask my students sometimes you know you all think you've got your own taste and we try to think back at, I try to get them to work about work around where do you think taste comes from do you think you're born with your taste do you think you've got your own particular sense of taste and you know I thought if you're kind of being bored you about it you haven't yeah. it, it's all kind of contextual right most of it is uh, so so that's that's the sort of fascinating aspect of taste and how it intersects with yeah. And, and very clearly demonstrates what it is in terms of class that's going on. This is class work, and in some cases ethnic work. I actually drew on uh, Daniel Miller's stuff, uh, and Daniel, Daniel Miller wrote about uh, culture. Uh, oh, and, and he edited a book called Car Culture, which is a really good book. It's about twenty years old, but brilliant book. Right, got lots of different pieces in there, uh, and, and he talks about taste in Trinidad, mm-hmm. and he talks about the two t- 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 significant ethnic. Minority communities in Trinidad, and one of them is sort of not indigenous but the black heritage, African heritage group, and then Indian heritage group. Okay. So there's a lot of Indo Trinidadians in Trinidad. And he says in Trinidad, there are two types of sweet drink, two types of cola drink. One is a sweet and one is not so sweet, one is red and one is dark. So, in that context, there's been a whole sense of myth making about each other. And amongst Afro-Trinididians, Trinidadians is a belief that the sweet drink, which is the red drink, the reason it's more favoured by the indo Trinidadians is because, well, they're Indians. And they have a higher incidence of diabetes, therefore they've got a sweeter tooth. Really? Too. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you should read that. Yeah. It's, it's it's fascinating bit of sense-making there in terms of how okay. you know, you're talking about where did these narratives come from. That's where they come from. They come from a sense of coherence, uh, and there right. is so it has this inbuilt coherence. Whether it's true or not is another matter. Yeah, it works. Yeah,
0: right? it's a logic, isn't thing. it?
1: That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. So there is a logic to the damn thing, and and it seems to function. You know, so in the same way, there is a kind of logic around certain behaviours and certain dispositions of driving and certain cars in Bradford.
0: When I was reading your book, I felt like you talk a lot, obviously, about car modification, mods. Um, And it seemed to me in the book that you were really keen to kind of show this as a space of creativity that just isn't valued in our society and is seen as a bit deviant, maybe. um, But actually could potentially offer a lot of possibility and opportunity. It'd be great if you could talk about that a little bit. I thought that was really interesting
1: this kind of emerged uh, almost secondarily within the data, and I drifted towards it. Mm. And uh, the more I learnt about it and the more I got involved with it, uh, the more enamoured with it I became.
0: Right. It is. That comes through in the book,
1: um, yeah. Well, it is so... uh, It is riddled with kind of contradiction... and and passion in, in, in equal measure and there are other things going on as well. So the people who do this stuff, you know, they're not just empty, vacuous beings who are just being loud and not just hourly loud or visually loud. You know, they're not that. And they are painted as that. Yeah. And and you get that with younger people generally, you know. And and you get you'll get that in Doncaster, you'll get that in Barnsley, you'll get that in parts of London, where young people of whatever ethnic ethnicity I think background They will do stuff with their cars and often some of them will meet up bunches and bunches, you know, hundreds of them and they'll show out their cars, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And there's a lot of identity work going on there, first of all. There's a lot of identity because what you're doing with that car is about what you are doing and that feeds back into what you and who you think you are. Yes. So that personality of you comes out in the car. So you'll you'll have and I, you know, I'm talking to these guys I'm like why, why do you do it and why, why? You know, they're telling me why they do it and I said look you know this is really interesting creative stuff it's artistic isn't it mm. and they'd look at me like what are you on what are you talking about artistic? oh really okay yeah I yeah, mean sometimes they'd, enough, they'd yeah. sort of agree or sometimes they'd say oh I never thought of it like that and that is also about class as well it's about how class thinking works you kind of you, you, you become so used to the fact that your class position in your class culture is so devalued that even you fail to recognise and appreciate it for what it is. Yeah. You know, if Damien Hirst comes along and starts pissing about with it, sorry, starts messing about with a car. <laughs> yeah. Right. It suddenly ends up in the tape. Or, or whoever, right? It's fine for that kind of. It's appropriation
0: who you are, isn't it? T- right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: but the original artifacts that are there and they're real and they're alive. And they're moving artistic, creative, functional artefacts. They go, you know, what does art do? It provokes. It makes you think. It makes you have uncomfortable thoughts. You know, all these definitions of art that you can come across can apply to this stuff. Yeah. Never applied, though. Instead, what is applied is we need to do something about these people. And that comes through loud and clear pretty much on a daily basis. Certainly in the local paper, you read some of the national press. There have been legislation. I mean, in Bradford, there's been legislation. there have been clampdowns. It happens in other cities as well.
0: Yeah.
1: We We this is n- nearly always uh, conceptualized as a problem to be resolved. First and foremost, this is not worthy. It is not good. It is not. There is no virtue to this. Yeah. People are investing time, emotion, energy, and money into this stuff. You know, I, I'm not an economist, but I, it'd be interesting to see what an economist would make of it in terms of the formal and informal economies in a city like Bradford that are based around this kind of activity. Right. And if you strip that away, what would that do to the local infrastructure and the local economy? Oh,
0: that's interesting, I know that,
1: yeah. Well, I know that businesses would go out of bust. and these are valid, bona fide businesses. These are not drug dealers we're talking about. These are fairly small to medium and maybe even bigger uh, companies. You know, people use components made by Sony and Bosch and whoever else in their car mods, right?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, when it comes to audio and stuff. Well, who do you think they're making them for? Who do you think makes amplifiers that can based out, based, you know, blast out bass lines that will deafen ordinary <laughs> Yeah. These are mainstream products, right? Yeah. So my point is, they're used in distinctive ways, but the ways in which they're used are far from appreciated. And I think that's really quite telling in terms of a kind of snobbery there is that sort of class snobbery and it's about this looking down on and then again it's a kind of disgust about that and again i was talking to people who are older you know so and and there is a kind of real distinction between class habitus and practice whereby you have you're more likely to be a car modifier if you're sort of from a working class heritage if you're from middle class heritage or if you're occupying that kind of zone uh you're more likely to buy a a fairly, you know, well-equipped car anyway. But, but you know, so I was talking to one guy, and he says, look, at, you know, these guys drive around in these cars, and they're all loud and brash. It's Disgusting. Chabs. Mm. That sort of word. You know, even the language is, ter- is disparaging. I mean, uh, then again, there were some people who were like me, middle class now, and they're, but they're still kind of from the street, they're still working class. So they would have a perfectly respectable car. But they'd have their weekend car as well. And their weekend car would be slightly, you know, messed about with. I was kind of surrounded by all this culture. And I thought, you know what? I feel like a bit of a fake turning up to these car meets, kind of walking around. Turn up in my, you know, fairly new, it's probably, it's nearly 20 years old now or whatever it is. But um, but it's not like any of their cars. You know, my car's dirty. These cars are all clean. They've been polished and laboured over. My, my car's just a standard car. These cars are not standard. No, no. And uh, so, I, you know, I, you end up kind of becoming more immersed. And it wasn't, at least consciously, a, a, a desire to become included because they were never about, you know, these people, they're very inclusive. They, they don't care. They don't care who comes as long as it's the car.
0: Do you get and quite something... a mix of people at
1: car meet? Well, that was the other interesting thing. Uh, the ones that are sort of small in Bradford, invariably yes and no. Right. So you'll get people who are from Bradford, right? And the majority of the people who turn up are usually, well, a significant number of them. Not, yeah, probably the at least the majority will be South Asian heritage male, but you'll get some women as well. Okay. But there would be, and some of these smaller meets, which are quite locally organised, uh, you, you'll get a diversity in terms of cars. So you'll get kind of older cars. You'll get Japanese cars and then you'll get European cars. And you'll get something weird and outlandish. You'll get supercars turning up. You'll get Bentleys turning up. So you can take any kind
0: of car to a car. Yeah, Yeah. whatever.
1: I mean, absolutely anything. More or less anything. Motorbikes, quads, whatever. Can you
0: tell I've never been to one?
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know the first time for everything i i I was i found the first one a bit daunting because you feel quite self-conscious about it all yeah
0: yeah and the
1: fact that you're going to be noticed but they don't really give a damn you know they're just there for the car they've got more important things to look at than you yeah to be honest Totally. right so it's always about the car and the hoods are up and you know people are admiring the 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 work in the bay in the engine bay or the interiors or the sound Mm. um and then you you know and so even in these are one or two outliers so i mean in there's a kind of a, quite a well-known guy, an older gentleman, white guy. He's, I, I mean no disrespect, but he's at least 70, probably closer to 80. Okay. And he's got this really sort of whipped ride. He's got this really blinged out car.
0: Yeah. And
1: I'm like, dude, God, I start talking to this fella. He's a really nice gentleman, right? And he's talking to me like a kid. He's talking to me like, ooh, it's a bit tasty when it wants to be this car. And, I'm like, and, you know, I've had it on a rolling road and I've had this stunt to the engine and I've done that. And it is clearly not a standard car. You can tell by the paint job, the, the modifications that have been done on it and the wheels and everything. And he's so invested in this car. And he's always had a thing about, you know, he's got an engineering background. But this is his thing. This is what yeah. he does. You know what I mean? So you get people like that. And on other events that I went to, there was a much more ethnically, if you like, diverse crowd. And that was where something really interesting happened. And and I wrote about it in the book. For me, it was very interesting because Bradford, one of the narratives around Bradford is around self-segregation, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, ethnic minorities segregating and living insular self, you know, consciously deciding to kind of be away from white people. We don't want to be near white people, apparently. But, you know, that's one of the simplified narratives, simplistic Mm. narratives. So I, I went to this car meet and I went early doors, you know, so there's hardly any cars there. And I see the cars turning up, and I see at one end, you know, there's a few cars parked up next to each other, and they're all people who know each other. And they're mostly South Asian lads, a few women, a few mm-hmm. couples, couples mm-hmm. turn up. And then, uh, other side of the car park, a few other cars turn up. So, uh, and the other cars, you know, uh, yeah, probably the majority of, of white ethnic drivers tend not to go for the Japanese cars. Okay. I'm not, I'm not really sure if I ever got to the bottom of that. I think there's a tasting as well. But there are, you know, I, mean, I met white white guys who drove, like, Nissan Skylines, MR2s, all sorts. So there is a bit of crossover, and it's not as acute as uh, Daniel Miller's soft drinks kind of analysis, okay. right? It's not as sharp as that. So so you get, on one side of the car park, you get a bunch of Asian drivers, BME drivers, and on the other side of the car park, white energy these drivers, okay. car park are filling up. And then within sort of, you know, half an hour or whatever, people start milling around. And it's no longer, in a sense, segregated like that. Right, it's, that's interesting. I mean, I don't think it ever was. I think it, no. I don't think it was ethnically segregated. It was more comfort zone segregated. Or well, people who segregated. just happen
0: to know each other. And, yeah, that's, yeah, that's
1: where they drift towards. Yeah. And then you see people parking pretty much anywhere they want. There isn't a white zone and a non-white zone, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And everybody's there looking at everybody else's cards. You know, and some of the cars were just amazing and spectacular, and some of them just, just, yeah, it went from the ridiculous to the sublime. I mean, I see this one dude with like, I think a, he's a white guy. And I think he's got either got a Ford or a Honda. I can't, can't remember, and he's got a wooden spoiler on it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's like, Slowly. He said, Yeah, I actually made that really kind of made up by the fact that he, he made his own wooden spoiler. And i like, I'm sure
0: that's a I'm lot sure of work and sp- a lot of care. Well, it's a lot, of, lot of effort.
1: Isn't it, it is. It is. It is oh. a lot of effort. And it's one hell of a DIY, but yeah. whether or not it works, I don't know. No. But, you know, there's so much kind of. And that's the other thing. And it kind of feeds back to the notion of creativity and yeah. artistry and innovation. There's so much innovation in Bradford, you know, in terms of you got these guys doing stuff and I'd hoc you know, in an ad hoc, ad hoc way, uh, kind of informal way, a little cottage industry. You know, if they can't do something, they'll know a friend who does or friend of a friend. So there's that. But then you've got a kind of professional tier of people who modify cars and then retail them on. So, you know, th- th- there's that variety as well, where there's, again, bona fide economic infrastructure taking place because of this type of activity.
0: So what do you think would happen then if we did embrace this kind of creativity creativity a bit more positively than we do and we weren't so down on it all the time. Would it give people opportunities and well, ways of expressing themselves that might be helpful in society?
1: Uh, well I think look, you know, for a start, people are sort of born resistant or born in quotes deviant, right? You know that they're not born difficult. No. I think one of the contexts which sort of fosters this circular economy of resentment and distrust and uh, marginalization where you've got in a sense authorities or those in authority or authority figures or those who help define the narrative being down on these younger people usually invariably and their cars and their behaviors
0: Mm -hmm.
1: is because that seems to be the easiest thing to do and it is reified as a problem to be resolved So one thing that needs to happen is to, what do you need to do to stop seeing it as a problem? And what impact will that have? Just the very fact of not seeing it as a problem. And I think once you start validating a practice, you then empower those people who undertake that practice.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? So these people are resistant because they know that they're being looked down upon or that their activity or their culture induces disgust or resentment or whatever else, they know that every time they drive their car, they are at more risk of being stopped and searched than anybody else, other than somebody who isn't in a car like theirs, right? Yeah. So once you start to sort of shift that narrative, I think you'll find uh, that the people involved in, you know, the the main constituents, i.e. the subjects of the narrative, to start not perhaps behaving differently, but perhaps having a slightly different outlook. You know, once you're not no longer seen as a problem, then you can kind of relax a bit and you can sigh, have a sigh of relief. Yeah. And once you do that, then you can start doing all, getting on with the work of kind of building a more sort of harmonious society. But that kind of sense of alienation that these people have is very real. And actually it's not surprising. Sometimes I'm surprised like, you know, what's wrong with you lot? Why don't you lot riot for God's sake? You've got something yeah. to riot about. You yeah. know, I'm not I'm not trying to create a riot, but like it, it, you know, I, when I was younger I didn't have half the crap in some ways that these guys do. We right. had different crap. Yeah. You know, it was a very different society when I was young. You know, racism was very different, but at least it was open.
0: Yes.
1: At least we had the at least racists had the decency to be racist quite openly yeah. not to say it was comfortable or happy times but i think now there are so many subtle codes and subtle workarounds race workarounds going on when it comes to racism in terms of how people speak and what they're actually saying when they're saying something that it makes people very attentive to be you know, and susceptible uh to being to to, to in terms of how they perceive themselves.
0: Yeah.
1: And devaluing that culture and a whole kind of swathe of society is is not helpful. I don't think that's going to get us anywhere. I think by acknowledging the culture, appreciating it, and to some extent embracing it and working with it rather than working against it is probably going to be more worthwhile. Because the other approach, you know, it's been going for years now. It's not working. It's not, you know. What, what I see... You know, I I hear not quite on a daily basis, certainly not with the lockdown and Corona and stuff. Mm. But you know, you have these you have younger drivers who take a chase for kicks, for you know, for a laugh. Taking yeah. a chase means you know, provoking a police officer into chasing you, right? And then getting away with it, and then sharing it on Instagram or whatever it is that young people do.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. There have got to be healthier ways to use that energy. Yeah. And I and I don't think policing it is being particularly effective certainly not at the moment you know it's it's just driving it even more underground and it's making more it's making people more resistant they're certainly becoming more aware of the risks and the dangers of being just driving or just being but but the alienation is something that that persists and grows worse i would say
0: and i think that's why that's why research like yours is so important because it kind of lifts the lid on all of that doesn't it and it makes especially in something as common as cars like we all interact with cars and we need to be questioning it and questioning the dynamics around it mm-hmm. to to change the way we think about things thank you for chatting to us Eunice if you want to find out more you can order Eunice's book race taste class and cars from the policy press website policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.